Gee. Well, here we go. Good morning, Open Door. Thank you. Thank you. What an honor. What a privilege. You, you say it every time you get up here, Stu, and I, I say the same. Uh, we were laughing back in the prayer room that when you're pastor, you can just have your whole family come up and do stuff. You know, um, you've got an you aunt who's back in Wisconsin. You can have her play congas if you like or, or <laughs> apparently have your dad come preach. So, uh, Guys, turn to Luke chapter 21. Um, this first slide, look at this. Earthquakes, plagues, famines, and rumors of war. My favorite stuff. I, 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 my gosh. Look, when I was pastor, I would give passages like this to Stuart. <laughs> and I, I really would. Oh, how the tables have turned. Uh, oh, you guys. Um, Luke 21, I can't possibly, if you're nearly as old as me, you might remember in the 70s and 80s, the emphasis that we had on end times things. Incredible how many conferences there were about end time stuff. Beautiful, powerful stuff. But there was books like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Do you remember that? The movie Thief in the Night, where the lawnmower just went off and no one was pushing it. <laughs> Tim LaHaye's Left Behind uh, series. Um, incredible. We're in a different season. There's not as much of that right now. Uh, and yet Scripture hasn't forgotten it. So um, I get to handle this today, and I'm overwhelmed. Let me explain the backdrop to this chapter. Jesus looks up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, chapter 21, verse 1, and he saw the poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I say to you, the poor widow put in more than all of them, for they gave out of their surplus they put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put all she had to live on. And, and they didn't, whoever it was around him, the disciples and others, they didn't quite get his point because they were just staring at the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. And so he said to them, um, you know what, guys, what you're looking at, these things that you're staring at, the days are going to come in which there will not be left one stone upon another or that will not be torn down. Josephus writes about the temple built by Herod. He says it was the, the stones, these stones were five feet wide, eight feet deep, 40 feet long, 160 tons. They're all going to be torn down, he says. And uh, what we're reading, most theologians believe he is describing in this first part and a little bit more um, what's going to happen in 70 A.D. When Titus, the emperor, the Roman emperor, will come with his armies and surround the city of Jerusalem, literally uh, take captive, tear down the temple, and it will never be the same. And so I want, I want to pick up reading, uh, go down to verse 12. And this, this I, I'm 
very confident, is about 80, 70, less than 40 years from the audience that he's speaking to. He says, verse 12, but before all these things that we'll come back to, they will lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you and deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it'll lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I'm going to give you utterances and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by your parents and your brothers and relatives and friends. And some of them, they're going to put some of you to death. You're going to be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head is going to perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance. So that all the things that are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Wow. As I said, Josephus, if you read in his history um, of Israel, he gives a vivid, vivid, accurate picture of what we just read. Now listen, this is where it gets wacky. A question's asked then, simply before he even does this, when he says it's all going to be torn down, somebody says to him, calls out in verse 7, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? And something in that word signs causes Jesus to say, Ah, let me tell you about how all this wraps up. And let me tell you what these signs are going to be that will give you an indicator that you're about in that season. And so he says in, in verse 8, See to it that you're not misled, for many are going to come in my name, saying, I'm he, and the time's near. Don't go, don't go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified, for these things must take place first. Now, but the end doesn't follow immediately. So, so whatever you're looking at, don't, don't be terrified. This isn't it. You're just watching the birth pains. You're just watching this start up. And, and there will be great earthquakes, Oh, I'm sorry, continue by saying um, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. There's going to be terrors and great signs from heaven. Wow. Nations threatening or at war. Earthquakes. Hurricanes increasing in their intensity. Plagues. More contagious viruses. Famines, sudden terrors, hideous, barbaric violence, 
Oceans rising, false messiahs, anxiety turning into panic, grown men fainting from fear of what's coming next. Nations externally and internally rising up against each other. Love grows cold. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Now, now listen, verse 9 says, these things have to take place, but, but first... It doesn't mean the end's yet here. Guys, I think, my personal, this is where I'm stepping away from expository conviction. Um, I think this was written for people such as us. I think this, um, I don't know for how long, and I don't know how long it is before it wraps up, but I think he's saying, you guys, pay attention. Be aware, these things are going to begin to happen. Um, so he goes into now this next section. Look at verse 25, and it changes. And I want to say Jesus in this section is at once warning unbelievers about the coming tribulation, while at the same time giving courage to those who trust him during it. Look at these verses. Hard to read. There will be signs, verse 25, in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. This is no longer about Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. We're going to see that again. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift, lift up your heads because your redemption's drawing near. And so he told him a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you, you see it and you know for yourself that summer's now near. Same way here. So when you see these things happening, these final things happening, I'm telling you, we're in, it's about to happen. And it won't, it won't be very long. This generation will not pass away before it takes place. So be on guard that your hearts don't get weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. I think he's talking to those who run the risk of not believing. So that, so that that day won't come on you like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times praying that you might have the strength to escape these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Look at that last verse, 36. How, how would you have the strength to escape it? One way, by risking to go against the culture and trust the strength of Jesus by putting your entire hope upon him. That's what he's saying. Now, right now. Um <laughs> I, I felt it was loud enough, but <laughs> forget Siri. Go to Alexa. Alexa won't do that to you. All right. You guys, it would take a 26-week series to scratch the surface on the subject of end times. 
My goal is to make this somewhat clear and relatable. You guys, I'm asking you, bear with me. Um, First of all, I forgot to have you do this. Under your seats is uh, Christ in me theology hat. And if you would, I just want you to put it on. Everybody reach down and grab it, will you? Just reach down and grab it. Okay, put it on your head. I need you to strap it on tight because this is your hair is going to be blown back. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, What we're about to do, nobody gets to go into this except with open hands and a broken heart and humility to admit that we might not be completely right in what we're saying. All of us. Open hands, a broken heart, and humility to admit we might not be right completely in what we're saying. Okay? Now, this, this, this does something to readers. There's, um, so I'm going to identify at least a couple of them. Some of us cannot square the love of God with the wrath of God. So we might ignore or devalue this passage as um, spiritualized mythology. Some of us believe all Scripture is God-breathed. We believe we can't pick and choose which passages are God-breathed. Oh, and some find hope amid the despair in such passages. For we have not yet experienced vindication from evils that have been perpetrated upon us. It can feel like justice has been forgotten. Here, here we see our innocence vindicated, justice enacted once and for all, all on the very planet in which it took place. Perhaps you saw the word wrath. I've scratched it out of my Bible, but um, it's still there. And it means judgment upon evil. Judgment against evil. And I want you to hear these words. If there is no judgment against evil, then there is no ultimate protection for love, goodness, and beauty. The God of love must by definition be able to redeem and restore this world, ultimately destroying not only evil, but a land where this evil is able to exist. Oh, and uh, one more thing before we start. Uh, There are humans in these scenes. Did you notice that? There's humans. And uh, all I want you to hear is God's position on these humans. John 3:16 and 17, "For God so loved every single person in the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but the, that the world might be saved through Him. Ezekiel 33, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9 
says the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. He's so patient towards you, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. And and then then we have Jesus' own words in Matthew when when he says these touching words. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. Do you know how often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? You've been unwilling. Jerusalem! So whenever you see this picture, know Jesus' position on mankind. And yet, I hate these words. There will be some when presented the option of evil or the love of Jesus are going to choose the former. That's as far as I can go. I don't understand it. Except by my own life and how I fought so hard against him to run my own life to almost total destruction in 27 years. Um, I got people behind me here. No, it's okay. All right, guys, before we start, basic hermeneutic, basic uh, understanding of how to interpret Scripture. Simple. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Period. If the plain sense of the passage makes sense to you, don't make any other sense out of it. You've got that one thing to do. All right. In Revelation, John, the apostle, he's experiencing a vision. Woo! <laughs> I mean, it is an interpreter's nightmare and conga party all at once. <laughs> Everything from poetry to personification to allegory to figurative to plain literal. But here in Matthew and Mark's and, and Luke's version, it is literal. It is straight on what he says he means, word for word. So this is... Um, is going to um, happen in real time. So, okay, so when will this happen? Could this happen to us? And if not us, who is it? All right, first, when will this happen? Those who've predicted a past date have one thing in common. They've all been wrong. And we have to have humility to be able to say we might not have this tied down when Martin Luther says um, the Antichrist is in the land. My calendar has run out. Martin Luther thought he was reading Luke 21. Um, God says no one gets to know. Apparently he'll return only on a day not predicted by someone. All right, here we go. I'm going to make this as fast and simple and clean as possible. Jesus Christ dies, raises from the dead, 
And this is history from now on there. God grafts the church into Israel's salvation story. Just that line alone. Can you imagine someone who's just walked into church for the first time today? God grafts the church into Israel's salvation story. I'll bet he does. (laughs) Then God brings the church home. God pours out wrath on all evil. The Son of God returns in triumph. And we live with Jesus on a new earth and a new heaven. Okay. God grafts the church into Israel's story, salvation story. Look, you guys, all history begins and ends eventually with Israel. What happens in between, goofballs like me get tossed into the story. And you know there's always an Israel, a spiritual Israel, within the larger Israel, right? You always know there's a believing Israel. within. When he's speaking in the New Testament, he's not talking usually about a geographical political system. He's talking about this group of people who either have come to know him, believed in him, rebelled against him, or eventually are going to come to believe in him. Acts 2, this beautiful thing happens. Uh, I can't remember how many days exactly after Jesus' resurrection, but Pentecost happens. Acts 2, where all those thousands and thousands come to believe. I got to be there and see where that was. All believers from that day on, Gentile or Jews, are called the church, ecclesia, or the body of Christ. And now the moment we trust Jesus as the Son of God, the sacrifice for our sins, our Savior, we become new people, new creatures, fused with God, brand new creatures. I can't tell where Jesus stops off and I start up. Brand new creatures, beloved, destined for heaven. And it's totally, totally by faith, it has zero, zero to do with um, your good behavior or your efforts or your right theology. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. It is my hope in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection for me. What I want you to get so much is that I am then protected from all wrath. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. 1 Thessalonians um, 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews, just to to stress that it has zero to do with my behavior to earn my way in. It says, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those of us funky, fragile, goofed up, who are eagerly awaiting him. Please, 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 please get that. If you get nothing else this morning. Now, Paul also says, 
that we, the Gentiles, are a parenthesis in history. Just a part of history. Started somewhere along history, we will stop at somewhere along history. Our deal, the church, this whole place. Romans 11, if you put that slide up, Mark, if that is a slide. Romans 11 says the Gentiles are grafted into this salvation. It is one of the most, I mean, you have to, it's a wild chapter. But in it, he says in verses 11 and 12, I say then, did Israel stumble so as to fall? Did they? Oh, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You, me. And why? To make Israel jealous. Isn't that crazy? He, he grafts us in. Why? Well, he loves us, but he wants to make Israel jealous. Can you imagine Israel going, really? You're kidding me. The Gentiles, the dogs. Do you have no taste? And he grafts us in. And then he says, now that we're grafted in for a little time, until we get everybody on board, he says in verse 25, there's kind of a partial hardening of Israel's heart. Some will come, but some will just go, it's just too much. I can't, no, this can't, you, you're our Messiah. You can't be the Messiah of the Gentiles. And verse 25 says, for I don't want brethren you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own underestimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A parenthesis. But a parenthesis has a beginning and an end in a larger story of salvation history. So God has to bring the church home. Let me again say it. Please, 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 if you get nothing else out of this morning, if we've been saved from wrath, we will not be found in future scenes of wrath. Raise your hand if you heard me. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Okay. So how does he get us out of here? It's fascinating to look at the book of Revelation. Verses, or chapters 5 through 19 talk about the great tribulation. Whatever period of time that is, is all in chapter 5 through 19. Chapters 1 through 4, you hear about the church, the church of Sardis, the church of... It's all about the church in chapters 1 through 4. 5 through 19, you never hear of us again. We're gone. And here, you guys, um, you want wild and woolly stuff? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's the event. Um, I want to read it to you. They had concern. Okay, Paul, what do we do? Uh, our friends, we're a brand new church, and if Jesus comes back tomorrow, what about my friend who died? And he says, don't, don't, don't worry. If he trusted in Christ, this, this is what happens. So he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Verse 13, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians so that you won't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. I love how he calls it falling asleep. And Jesus, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And here it is, 16 through 18, if you'll put that up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. You're going to hear it. Jesus Christ shouting for his beloved with the voice of the archangel. Why not? And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be, here it is, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. So therefore, you guys, comfort one another with these words. Amen? Amen. That's going to actually happen. Are you kidding me? Next slide. The word that's used, the term in Greek is harpazo, to catch up together, to take away. Now, the Latin language came along and said, what word would we use to convey the same thing of being caught up? And their word that they picked that said the same meaning as the Greek word was rapio. It's where we get our word rapture. Now this, this scripturally makes an excellent explanation of how it happens. It's just that it sounds so, so supernatural and wacky. I mean, come on. But then again, my faith demands a virgin birth, a Messiah who's fully God and fully man, God and three persons, and a hero who rises from the dead. (laughs) Now the atheist says, my friends who are atheists would say, see, there you go. It's it's just full of magic. And I go, no, it's just, this is, uh, you want to know it's full of magic is what you believe. Think of what you believe. Nothing? Everything. (laughs) Nothing. (coughs) Wally world. (laughs) Are you kidding me? And they will say, no, 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 John, there was a big bang. From what? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Zero. Incapable of doing anything. Inanimate. Nothing. No movement. Oh, there were gases, John, who eventually (laughs) verged and then walked onto the ocean floor. Nothing. There ain't enough reefer to believe that. (laughs) Come on. You know what? I think I'll take my stand with this whole wacky thing of a God who loves me and rose from the dead for me. As hard as it was for me to believe that, uh, I'll take my stand there. And then God pours his wrath out on all evil. Stay there in 1 Thessalonians. He says in verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, whatever period of time that is, that that traumatic great tribulation, that that horrible epoch, will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they won't be able to escape. But you, brethren... I'm not talking about you. You're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for your sons of light, sons of day. Five years ago, the, the Thralls and the McNichols and the Lynches had the privilege to go with a family 
a beautiful family named the Houstons. We got to go to Israel and, and Ephesus and all the areas around, and we got to stand one day up on a hill overlooking Har Magadan, Armageddon. I couldn't believe it. I can't. As far as I could see, it was level. It was plains as far as I could see. And I read about this. I thought, really? Is this really going to happen, God? It just overwhelmed me. And then I joined back up with the party and we went on with the tour. We're talking to a lot of you, we are tempted to ignore these scenes. They hurt to look at because we're not in them. But I want you to look at them again carefully because some of these may be your brothers and sisters. Who's he speaking to? Remember Jesus says that once warning the unbelievers about the coming tribulation while giving courage to those who trust him during it. These, I think, this is my best shot, these are the ones who believed once the tribulation starts. Believing Israel and others who believe their testimony. It's fascinating. Um, In chapter 4 of Revelation, you see all of humanity, all of those who have believed, all of them around the throne, worshiping God. Everybody. But there's a subset group that will be part of this, But he talks about them separately in chapter 7. He says they're wearing white robes and they've got palm fronds. And he says, who is this? And God says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they'll know me. And they're part of this from every nation, from every tongue. Then the Son of God returns. Just when it looks like the hero comes too late. You read about it in Revelation. It's so powerful. Oh gosh, this is, this is when the ugliness stops. I saw heaven, I saw heaven open. This is, by the way, verse 27 in our chapter, Luke, when it says that he comes on the clouds. Then I... Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him that no one else knows except for himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. And then to condense this in time for a message, we get to live with Jesus on a new heaven and a new earth. So let me review again. Jesus Christ dies and raises from the dead. God grafts the church into Israel's salvation story. God brings the church home. God pours out wrath upon all evil. The Son of God returns in triumph. And we live with Jesus on a new heaven and a new earth. 
So if I'm right, back here in Luke 21, that verses 8 through 11 uh, maybe are about us. Maybe for us these signs to look at so that we will know what season it is. What's he trying to tell us? Maybe he's saying, let the signs remind you that this present system, this present injustice, this present evil and wickedness, it will not prevail. Let the signs remind you that this is a short life and it's a short history. Make it count. Let the signs remind you to trust Christ in you. Because lovelessness is going to happen. It's going to increase. People will be more unloving. Just all you have to watch what we're in right now in our cultural and political wars. It's coming. It's there. And Christ in us is what gets to actually stand in and be preventative and protective and loving. We, this, this love of Christ that's in us we actually get to be a light to the world that's falling apart. And let let the signs remind you to love those who stand against Him now. Love them with all of your heart. And let the signs remind you that you have a God who loves you more than you love yourself. I'm going to finish by... um, And then I'll sit down. I just want to show you one thing. Um, This beautiful scene, the last statement I made there that we'll live with Jesus on a new heaven, a new earth. Chapter 21 says, uh, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God's among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. What a picture. We we come into heaven with tears in our eyes, and the living God is the one who says... May I wipe those. That will be happening. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Oh, beautiful friends, the first things have passed away.